Welcome back, everyone, to New Books and Language with the New Books Network. My name is Lee Pierce. I'm your host, she, they pronouns. I'm a doctor of rhetoric and communication at the SUNY Geneseo University, which is outside of currently very gray and gloomy Rochester, New York. And I'm very excited today to be joined by Dr. Amy Korber, who would like to be called Amy. The new book, um, well, it's a, it's from 2018, but as you know, for for new books in academia and research, we tend to use the word new pretty, pretty lightly. But the new book from 2018, From Hysteria to Hormones, A Rhetorical History from the Pennsylvania State University Press, has really been a delight to read. And it actually makes a relatively obvious argument now that I think about it. I cannot believe that it hadn't occurred to me. That's one of the things I love about the rhetorical field is that they, the, the people that write in this field tend to make such unique connections, but they still make sense. And that is, we think that the Western uh, medical tradition and, and culture especially has gotten away from this antiquated discourse of hysteria around women, right? Women hysteria, women as frigid and these kinds of really archaic medical practices that we look at now and think, why on earth would you ever do that? But in fact, uh, Dr. Korber's book argues that there is a very intimate connection, especially especially on the rhetorical level, between those kinds of discourses and ways of thinking and the way that we talk about women's hormones, or, or more importantly, the way that we like read and make work women's hormones to control dominant conceptions of womanhood in the contemporary moment. It's an excellent read for anybody, but especially anyone interested in women's health, public health, um, medical discourses, or who likes rhetorical histories that tend to span a large, a large span of time and integrate ideas from what seem to be like disparate eras in medicine. So I can't recommend the book enough. And again, it's from the state university. I always get this wrong. It's from the state university, the, sorry, the Pennsylvania State University Press. And we're excited to talk to the book. And then after we're done, I will go ahead and let you know about more where you can find it. So Dr. Corb, are you still there after my, my little interlude? Yes, I am. Wonderful. Amy, I'm sorry. It's a, it's a bad habit. Well, Amy, I would uh, love for you fun. to tell, <laughs> thanks. I'd love for you to tell the readers more about yourself and anything about the book that you think is helpful for someone just tuning in. Okay, sure. So I'll, I'll start by just talking about kind of the origins of this book. So my first book was published in 2013, and that was, it was actually an outcome of my dissertation. So for many years, basically for about a decade, I was researching breastfeeding discourse, and I was researching in particular the rhetorical rhetorically interesting things about how infant feeding information is communicated to new mothers. And I published that book in 2013, and I was kind of like, I was ready to move away from that topic in particular, but at the same time, I just felt like there was more to be done. Like, I felt like there were questions left unanswered about moving beyond the specific topic of breastfeeding and lactation to some more underlying issues about how medicine and culture perceives women's bodies as opposed to men's bodies. And I just kind of, I guess there was that time of like lying fallow between big projects, but I was kind of collecting anecdotes and kind of thinking about ways we talk about women's bodies, especially just in casual discourse, you know, like, you know, women at all levels will sit around and talk about pregnancy brain or, you know, my brain's not functioning well today because of this or that. And I really just decided kind of casually one day, what is behind that? And what, what is behind that way that we talk about? And I, I, I initially, my working title of this book for, for a couple of years was actually the hormonal woman, because I was really fascinated with that concept and where does it come from? And started doing some research and found out that the word hormone itself had only existed since 1905. And so then that led me to ask, well, how do we talk about this concept? Surely, surely we had other ways of talking about this same concept before the word hormone was available. And then then that led mm. me down what I call a rabbit hole, but it was a huge rabbit hole <laughs> of hysteria. And then, then that led to kind of the main argument of the book. 
Yeah, and what's cool, just to kind of think about our metaphors here, is that you, you know, you use this concept of the Mobius strip. So not, not necessarily like the, well, yes, the rabbit hole, but also like the Mobius strip, which is to say that it, it, it loops back on itself, right? So do you want to maybe talk about that as an organizing idea for how you think of the relationship of hormones to these previous discourses? Sure. And I can't remember exactly how I came across that, but I think I was doing some reading on a different topic, kind of just randomly. And then it it occurred to me that that is the perfect way to explain what I'm trying to talk about. So yes, you're absolutely right. It's not a rabbit hole necessarily, but the idea of the Mobius strip, it's actually a concept from mathematics and it's a continuously, and there's a picture of it in the book in chapter one, but it's a continuously smooth surface. And the way I usually explain it or the way that it's explained in mathematics uh, in order to understand is an ant could crawl this surface continually and never cross an edge. And so that really started to explain for me. And then there's a whole branch of mathematics that has developed around this called topology. But the way it comes into rhetoric is through a philosopher named Michel Serre, who uh, has written about this extensively and uses it as a way to explain history and to go against any uh, assumptions of linearity, any idea that history proceeds in a straight line, and to remind us that really old ideas never really truly go away. We never really leave them behind. They just keep resurfacing in new ways. Which which is great and a very different way of thinking about, I think, especially like medical discourse related to women's bodies, because we often think of it as we've shed all of the bad science from the past and all of the sexism and all of the outdated understandings of women. And we've moved on to some kind of new, more neutral, enlightened. Because, you know, you, I mean, I've, I've had this issue with people where I talk to them about the way they're talking about hormones sounds an awful lot like, like kind of outdated. And they're like, no, hormones are science. Hysteria was like misogyny. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, that, that's interesting that you would say that. So fabulous. Yeah. The book, I mean, for readers, especially, I think the book does a really good job of laying out what it's going to do, why it's doing it and how it's going to function in a way that really actually made me more excited to read the book. Cause a lot of times you get just the basic chapter breakdown but the way that this book was just going to swirl around itself and just come back to themes, but they wouldn't exactly be the same themes from the previous chapter. I mean, it was really fascinating. And I, I enjoy the care that you took to lay out how the book was going to function. Well, thank you. I'm glad to hear that. And that, that was one of the most challenging things because a book, right? I mean, when you lay out your book proposal, you have to have chapters. And if you're covering so much historical ground, you really feel like you have to kind of start at the beginning and, and work forward. But I really did not want to do that. So I had to very carefully and it, it took several drafts and, and revisions and conversations with reviewers and, and so on to achieve something that still can be a book and still has a logical progression, but tries to capture that ever recurring and nonlinear history uh, of historical progression. Yeah, you actually have uh, in in the introduction in the ch- in the section called structure of the book this lovely quote with which I will read if that's all right. Uh, it's on page page twelve. The book's analyses are organized around major themes that extend through the centuries. Sometimes these themes disappear for a while and then resurface. So the analyses within these chapters are presented in a way that intentionally captures the complexity and nonlinear form of emergence and evolution of scientific ideas, the centuries, and the multidirectional transfer of knowledge from expert to public spheres and back again. So, which is a, which is exactly what it does. <laughs> so that was yeah. a, that was a promise <laughs> kept. Well, and unfortunately, we are going to now have to do the the thing that I hate doing, which is oversimplify things. So I thought, in terms of a starting place, maybe you could talk a little about a little bit about the first part of the book, in which you talk about hysteria in the ancient texts, which, of course, we ne- we ne- we now know has not exactly gone away, just morphed. But for for the sake of simplicity, right? Hysteria in the ancient texts 
which is pre-19th century, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And this idea you have of calling the womb, W-O-M-B, the, the womb, a tropological space. And you touched a little bit about that, but I'd really love to know more about how the womb is a tropological space. Sorry, topological. It's my rhetoric brain. <laughs> right. to- topological, topological, no R. No R. <laughs> Thanks. Sure. Well, let's see. So first of all, just in terms of doing the research for the book. So even when I when I say that hysteria took me down a rabbit hole and it just took me way back farther in history than I thought, because I guess my kind of common knowledge understanding was that that hysteria could be traced to the ancient Greek texts and you have Hippocrates, you know, I was very familiar with that whole folklore of the idea that the womb is a wandering animal and that it, it won't stay in place inside of the women because they literally, some, you know, physicians literally believed it was a wild animal that had to be tamed inside the woman or it would cause all these health programs, uh, health problems. But I was just astounded to find out that that concept, it really, I guess this shouldn't have been so surprising, right? Because we have such a bias. We, we tend to just think that Western history is everything. So I shouldn't have been so surprised. But it was fascinating to find out that similar ideas had appeared in much earlier in ancient Chinese and Egyptian uh, texts to where there was an idea of, I think it was in the ancient Chinese text, there was this concept of a, a pig. They saw it as a pig and they had disease, understood diseases as resulting from a pig wandering around inside a woman's body. So again, there's nothing new under the sun, right? Every idea that we think is new, even way back then, uh, was actually very old. But then uh, to specifically answer your question about this no- notion of the womb as a topological space, so that I drew on that from an idea from this philosopher, Michelle Serre, Michelle Serre that uh, informs a lot of the work in the book. But it's this idea that the womb itself throughout the different eras of history has been sort of easy for experts, whether medical experts or scientific experts or just kind of people who want to declare themselves experts can kind of adapt it and stretch it to meet their own needs at the moment. So in that way, the womb itself becomes a very topological surface that is just endlessly morphed and and reshaped and redeveloped and renamed depending on the specific needs of the moment. Does that make sense? Yeah. And um, I don't know if you remember this because again, for, for listeners at home who've never written, written an academic book, a book published in 2018 is from material that you probably haven't worked with for many years after that, because the process of finishing the book to publishing the book is incredibly long. So if it seems strange that we might be saying things like, oh, if you recall from a book from two years ago, it's not two years ago for the person who wrote it. Right. Right. So, um, you, you talk about the Seine River in the, in this chapter too, which I really liked. And you say, and this is also Sarah's metaphor of the Seine River because of the multiple conflicting undercurrents that underlie the river's seemingly smooth surface than to the smooth surface itself, right? So you're, you're not looking at just the smooth surface. You're looking at all of the, I guess you wouldn't call it the, the deep surface, which, which is like Marxism, but you'd call it like the ripples beneath the surface where the water's moving, Right. In motion, maybe. Is that is that kind of how you think of that? Yeah, definitely. And I think I mean, that's another good metaphor that I really liked that helped me understand this notion of topology, because it's not even so much like a distinction between the surface and what's under the surface. But the fact that I mean, if you ask someone which way is a river flowing, they're going to give you an obvious answer and it's going to be based on which it appears to be flowing. Right. That's not I mean, I'm not going to say that's a lie because it's true because you can see it with your own eyes, but it's not the whole truth because right not even under the surface, but even part of the flow is all these different currents going in a different direction. Mm hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and so the book starts with with the currents that are kind of flowing around pre-19th century so that you can move and see how those currents 
yeah. remain but shift. Yeah. It, I mean, it, yeah, you did a great job. Like I said, laying out a very complicated concept. So in terms of more of the content of the book, could you tell us a little bit about, uh, I can't remember the first name of, of Dr. Hollick. So you spend a lot of time in this first chapter in, chapter on Aristotle's masterpiece and, and Hollick, whose first name I did mm-hmm. not write down in my notes. Je- uh, Jeffrey. No, no, that's, that's not it. Never, anyway. And what, what kinds of things he was saying about hysteria and women and the womb in this like pseudoscientific exploration of that subject. And his name is Frederick, by the way. Frederick. That's right. Sorry. I couldn't, I couldn't read the first initial. I thought maybe it was a J. Uh, No, that's okay. And I I thought I was pretty sure it was Frederick, but I decided to look it up just to make sure. So it was Frederick. Yeah. I spent a lot of time with Frederick during my time of writing. Oh, you poor thing. So are, are you asking me what, what kinds of things did he say? Yeah, because for the people at home, they yeah. haven't read the literature and I want right. them to go read the book. But for the sake of just getting them right into the meat of things, like what kinds of things were when people, when, when this guy was studying and exploring as a quote unquote scientist, was he saying just generally, you don't have to quote or anything, but just your general impressions of what he was saying about wombs and hysteria and women's humors and all of that stuff. Right. Well, so he was really the reason I spent so much time with him. I mean, he was a very significant figure in trying to outline a more scientific understanding. So by that time, you know, again, they had all these new ideas and, and they thought they were the latest and the greatest. They were, you know, with their progressive mindsets, they were moving beyond these outdated ideas of the womb literally being a wild animal. Right. But yet they still had to figure out another way to explain how that womb was causing problems for women. And so it was literally I mean, this was the age of, you know, classifying everything and spelling everything out. And so he just tried basically came up with new and different ways to explain. Yes, the womb is not a wild animal, but it still does these things to a woman's body. And this was kind of, Uh, hmm. weren't quite yet at the point of really truly having psychology, like we would understand psychology, but it was kind of, you might call it a precursor to an understanding of that something influences the brain in a woman's body that is not the same as in a man's body. Yes. Which which, which, not, which, in the way you paraphrased it, sounds so shockingly similar to contemporary medical discourse. Even though, even though the, the the concept metaphors or the specific terms might change, and then you move from there just a little bit later in the in the time period uh, um, into the 19th century, and I really liked the argument that you made about the 19th century because you talk about it as a moment of stasis, and um, which is a, which is another rhetorical term like like topology. Or sorry, well, topology you kind of imported, right? But I would, but stasis is more of like a, a term that we're familiar with, which just means both a pause in argument, you say, and then also a, a time of great potential for argumentation and invention. And you essentially argue that in the 19th century, the focus, uh, would you say, you said, uh, through intensifying their focus on women's brains and emotions rather than the uterus, as the, the womb, as the primary location of hysteria in the female body, 19th century scientists became increasingly interested in the cyclical nature of hysteria symptoms, observing that these symptoms seemed to correlate with the menstrual cycle, though they could not explain how or why. But then you also add the hysterical woman at this point in history becomes increasingly seen as a menace to society. So I thought, uh, so, so after we get um, from Hollick and the womb, we start getting into more about this focus on the brain and the emotions, and then also this almost criminalizing of hysterical women, who of course are only made hysterical by the discourse, right? And then and then made criminals by the discourse as well. So maybe you could talk a little bit about all of, of that little nugget of insight that you offer. Sure, sure. Yeah, and backing up, because as you mentioned, this was stasis was one of the uh, concepts in this chapter, which is a very much concept from classical rhetoric. And one of the explanations of of stasis that I really liked and found useful for this chapter is it's that moment, like we often think of stasis just as a stopping point in the argument, but uh, I can't remember honestly which theorist came up with this idea, but he said stasis is like the moment at the top of a golf swing 
where you stop for a second before you swing back mm, there, and uh-huh. a pendulum swings and it pauses for a moment, but then it swings back the other direction. And I found that very useful for the 19th century because, I mean, I guess kind of spoiler alert here, but moving ahead, there was a lot of that going on during the 19th century. A lot of these questions, and like like you were pointing out, like there there was starting to be very general observations of different things in the body that were controlling the different systems. And for women's reproduction and women's health, they were starting to notice these cyclical changes. They were starting to notice that, but then it was like a puzzle with a missing piece and all of that built up. And you could think about if we go back to the, you know, the pendulum metaphor or something is it was all swinging one way And then there was like this big pause of kind of building up momentum. And then uh, here's where the spoiler alert comes in. You get to the early 20th century and finally they come up with this concept or this term of hormones. And that is the missing piece to the puzzle. But yeah, the 19th century was an interesting time because all this was sort of building up. And then, yeah, the connection to I don't know how to really explain the connection to social issues. But it's just that this was the time when disciplines were becoming more distinctly defined. And so this was the time when the phrenologists were studying brains and trying to figure out why, how the brain of a criminal differed from the brain of a, of a non-criminal. Right. Mm-hmm. Trying to scientifically explain really what it was is trying to find scientific explanations for phenomena that used to be described in religious terms. So we're getting away from this idea of spirit possession and, you know, somebody needs to have their spirits, uh, get rid of their spirits or whatever, trying to find scientific explanations for everything. And I think that's part of why you see this blurring of boundaries between scientific problems and social problems. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And also, but yeah, doing all of that. And also, as you mentioned in the book, needing for those problems to still be deviation from the scientific norm, right? Because it's, it's not Mm -hmm. possible for the people at this time that a criminal and a non-criminal could in fact, just have the same brain structure. Exactly. (laughs) There has to be a source. Yeah. Same thing for, for, for gender, right? It's not, or or I guess you would say sex in this context, but like a a woman just can't, just can't simply have the same brain structure as a man and certainly can't just have the same brain structure as a quote, well-behaved woman either. Right. Exactly. And I guess when we're speaking of, of women, I guess witchcraft would be another relevant concept here. And I think that comes Uh to this chapter, because again, if you're moving away from more of a religious framework to a more scientific framework, can't really have witches in science, right? <laughs> but yet you still need to right. say, oh, <laughs> you still need to have some kind of explanation that accounts for that bad, troublesome woman. It's just we start focusing less on witches and more on prostitutes or you know shoplifters or whatever kind of bad woman that you want to have. Uh, and so you need a scientific explanation. That yeah, the, um, this was really interesting because um, you know, and it, and it created a lot of complex responses in me, which I'm sure is what you want. Because on the other, on the on the one hand, when you see the efforts of these doctors to try and understand, like for example, you devote several pages in this chapter to uh, Charcot, so one of the, one of these um, medical, I don't know if he was a was he a physician or um, Charcot, yeah, yeah, he's a physician, and his trying to figure out the difference between epilepsy and hysteria. And on the one hand, it's sort of like good that this work is being done. Cause obviously like if we hadn't done it, there some things would still be in play that are obviously incredibly problematic. But on the other hand, just watching the driving assumptions of what these, it's just very aggravated. So it was like a very cool, complex uh, a set of emotional reactions I had to, or it could just be my hysteria. I guess it just depends. But as I was reading the chapter, so it was really well laid out. And I thought you'd, you gave a very fair read of all of these characters. Um, if you, I guess if you can call them that. Yeah. No, and that's you, really, that's a really important point because I mean, there's, I don't ever want to downplay the significance of science because we are in a better place right now because the fact sure, yeah, right. You know, somebody couldn't just come along and say, well, guess what? 
I've I've now discovered that the womb is actually a wild animal. They wouldn't be able to say that anymore because, you know, it has to be backed up by peer review and whatever. So we are in a better place. Yeah, agreed. Um, and I think one of the ways you see this is I was thinking about this as I read it is there's been a lot of debate among like trans people about where exactly, or sorry, not trans, um, but, uh, but, but gay, bisexual, lesbian, um, not, um, a- asexual, a, a polyamorous. Yes. I, I, I need my term sheet. I have a term sheet for this in front of me because I'm old. So I use old terms and I have to watch <laughs> myself. So I apologize if I'm not using the terms. I didn't, I didn't think about this until this moment, but but where that comes from. And for years, people wanted to root it in the brain. And it matters too, because when you think about like um, how to treat how to treat people who want to do gender reassignment, hormones have been, I think for a lot of people, very emancipatory. Yes. Yet they also bring with them a ton of problems. Yes. So we see hormones show up in other areas. And by all accounts, and I could be wrong on this, it, this originated with the kind of research you're looking at and then has been grafted onto other areas in sometimes very emancipatory ways and sometimes very problematic ways. So we, we don't want to just dismiss hormones as like, oh, yeah, throw them out and do something else. But still, I mean, you can, you can use hormones when, they, when they're helpful as a concept and then also critique when they are unhelpful as a concept. Yeah, exactly. That's very important. Yeah. So, and I thought you did a great job. I mean, I thought the book was incredibly, I, 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 um, I worked, do you know who Kelly Happy is? Yes. Yeah. So I worked really closely with Kelly Happy when I was at university of Georgia and you next, you know, alongside her, you are the best person to have, to have ever written a book on the rhetoric of science. I think in terms of just being very, not neutral, but you're very fair handed in how, how truly complex this problem is instead of being overly overly like angry about it or to flip it just very very defensive that oh this is working just fine you stop stop denigrating science or it's going to lose public fund lose public funding kind of thing. right right yeah. no well thank you i appreciate that yeah and then we get and then i got out of my depth so once we i was pretty good until chapter four and then chapter four you brought up endocrinology and uh, how that <laughs> starts to get into the mix and this was something i had zero experience with so um the, yeah. So how endocrinology gets into the, into the workings is fascinating. I mean, this is just a cool book. So do you want to talk a little bit more about endocrinology and how that ch- changes and sort of reifies the conversation about hormones that was previously the conversation about the uterus? Yeah, sure. So, well, so the, once we had the term hormone in 1905, then, you know, you can think of this going back to stasis, you can think of this as the, 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 Others, this pendulum swinging the other way or whatever, all that momentum is released. And so that all of a sudden you have all these big changes. And one of the things that was happening at this time, and by the way, I was also very unfamiliar with endocrinology. This was, was very new to me, but medicine was splitting into these more specialized disciplines. So, and I think I have an endocrinology started out kind of slow and it actually was treated by many, or it was believed by many as quackery because it started out with these people that were trying to like, like they would uh, claim to have these elixirs or whatever that were actually based in what later came to be called hormones, but they would sell them as like, you know, you could restore your youth or whatever. And, but anyway, once we had the term hormone, it helped to mobilize the discipline of endocrinology and give it legitimacy. So then you see over the first decades of the 20th century, a real growth in this discipline. And it really, it changed the ball game, so to speak. I mean, all of a sudden you had, you could have scientific explanations for which, for things that had been very, very puzzling to scientists for years. And it really didn't start out, it it really started out, it was in all parts of the body, like they, they were very mystified by how did, uh, so we have this thing that we, we call respiration, and we know that breathing is an important process in the body, and something in the body is controlling it, but it's not the brain, what is that? And hormones came along and answered that question. And then it was the same thing for digestion. And they were starting to understand, you know, the food intake and it gets digested and your body does certain things with it. 
they couldn't figure out. Well, again, hormones were the answer to all of that. And then it was actually a little bit later in closer to the mid 20th century that the hormones became connected to reproduction and then female reproduction. But anyway, it was this big mystery and then it was all coming together and it was very unsettling. You read in some of the old texts, you can tell it's very unsettling because, right, this is the age of reason. I mean, this was the time you had just spent all these centuries kind of moving up through enlightenment and everything and this focus on the human brain and and humans being very rational beings and we're different from animals because our brains dictate everything we do. So it was a very unsettling notion, this idea that there's something in the body that's not a brain and it's not a soul but it's making things happen. Yeah. And you had this awesome, um, uh, what are they called? They call epitaphs. The things at the beginning of the chapter, the quotes yeah, at the beginning. Like an, epitaphs. An epi- ep- epigraph. Epigraph. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Epitaphs so, on the yeah. tombstone. Yeah. I get them. Yeah. I get them confused. Okay. Yeah. And it's from this news news. I think it's a newspaper article from 1933. Yes. Where this, where this journalist is announcing that these chemists have found, quote, a new chemical tree of life. Yeah. And then you go on to say that this is kind of how they thought about this, this like other substance in the body. And, and now that we could, we could identify it and that it was chemical and not physically rooted to a specific area in the body, that it was going to give us a new Eden of like mastery over our behavior. Yes. Yeah. And I love that too because of the, the religious reference. Well, it's also just great writing. I mean, stylistically, uh-huh. I don't know where you, I don't know where you found that newspaper article or how you, how you connected the, what the chemists were doing to what the endocrinologists in terms of like women's reproductive science were doing and then put it all together. But I loved having the chemical tree of life as a metaphor to, to organize this chapter. So it was very cool. Thank you. And do you want to say more about um, how, how the discourse at this moment kind of saw that, that you call it an Eden. There was like this going to be an Eden because of this new substance that had been discovered. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just really, I think if I'm remembering right, this is the chapter where I talked about the origins of the word hormone. So it was, it was literally a lecture by a British physician named Ernest Henry Starling. And he gave a lecture in 1905 to the Royal Society and the according to the historical documentation i read is he didn't know it was the night before this lecture and he was going to give this big lecture and he happened to have dinner with a friend of his who was a classics professor and they were talking about what to call this thing these cuz they were using vague terms they were saying like chemical messenger or different words like that and his friend from classics actually suggested the word hormone, which derives from the Greek word for that which sets in motion. And that's literally how he came up with the word. But then once he gave the speech, it became, I guess I want to say kind of like an organizing concept, because all of a sudden, I mean, you wouldn't think, oh, just a new term would be for something that you've understood for a while. You wouldn't think it would be that big a deal. But it became kind of like, I mean, this is the power of rhetoric, right? It became very organizing principle that brought together all these different experts from different disciplines, but then it also helped them kind of solidify their different disciplines. So there was a lot of new medical specialties that were born in this kind of early 20th century. And in fact, I was already somewhat familiar with this from my infant feeding research because the 20th century was also a big time for immunology to develop as a discipline. And then that, of course, changed fundamentally changed how we think about breast milk but anyway that yeah so it was just a a period of real organizing and becoming more systematic becoming more scientific and then if I'm remembering right that's also the chapter where I look specifically I don't know I may be getting ahead of myself but it's either in this chapter or the next one where I look very specifically at some medical texts that were written in the mid 20th century, where you start to see a slippage between talking about women's reproductive health, or let's just use the word female problems, uh, 
in terms that sound like hysteria from terms that sound more like hormones. And literally you'll have in the same medical article, they'll talk about something. Sometimes they'll even use the word hysteria or they were still using the term hysterical neurosis at that time. But then in the very next paragraph, they'll start talking about hormonal explanations. Oh, so so it's like a liminal space where they're shifting from one register to another, but they're still both in sight at that moment. Yeah. Yeah, this was yeah, so this is a great chapter. This is chapter five, which has an awesome name. It is called Topology of Sex Difference, a long history of men saying outrageous things about women's reproductive organs. <laughs> okay, so yeah, so I was jumping ahead a little bit, but No, no, it's fine. I mean, well again, like this is the this this is why I think the Mobius strip was helpful as a metaphor because hormones and hysteria and endocrinology, like, yes, you can talk about them as discrete moments, but they're also so not discrete that there's no way you can keep track of their overlaps. So I think, I think you're just proving your own point, which is, I can't remember which chapter it was in because it was probably in all the chapters, just one (laughs) chapter, just one chapter did it more than the others. But yeah. So do you want to give us some of your favorite highlights or anything you can remember from this chapter in terms of the outrageous things that were being said? Because again, I don't want to just like turn this into a man science bashing session, but I think a little <laughs> bit of that, I think a little bit of that is warranted with the depth of research that went into this book. Right, right. So speaking of history, not moving in a linear direction. So I just opened it up to the beginning of, ch- of chapter five and I see this is the chapter where I put in the quotes there from a uh, uh, Missouri Congressman Todd Aiken. And then when I started researching the things he had said, I found out that he was actually uh, echoing some ideas that had said been said within the last couple decades by other politicians. And this is where we get into this idea that um, that somehow female bodies, I mean, it's sort of a double-edged sword, that it's sort of this reverence of female bodies that they have these unique powers, but then at the same time, that very easily slides into a fear and a, a need to further control women's bodies. And so what, what Todd Aiken was saying in particular, he's the one that said, oh, you know, we don't really have to worry about making exceptions to abortion legislation for rape because the female body has ways to shut that down. In other words, if a woman gets raped, she can magically control herself from getting pregnant or or something like that. And anyway, I I managed to connect that to the history covered in the book uh, and also connected it back to some things that had been said in ancient texts. Like uh, if I, I went all the way back to Aristotle and sort of this debate over whether the female plays any meaningful role in reproduction or not. And like I said, that's where we get into this double-edged sword because it's gone back and forth between treating women's bodies as very powerful and kind of all controlling, like echoed in, in Todd Aiken's comment, and then also seeing them as completely passive and playing no substantive role. And Remembering this chapter right, then through the different eras is there's different ways that we swing back and forth between those two extremes. And no matter which extreme you're talking about, somehow it's problematic for women at at any given moment. (laughs) So I, I would say in some ways, this is the most depressing chapter because we had these remarks from very high profile politicians that, you know, were very much present and recent. And I don't think those have gone away necessarily. Are you still there? Yeah, sorry. Um, I muted my mic. And then at the same time, my cat immediately tried to jump on my laptop. So I couldn't, (laughs) I couldn't get back to my, I couldn't get back to my, because I was holding, I was holding him in one arm to keep him from canceling the recording. Yes, I uh, I heard everything you said. This is amazing. And one of the things and not to just like make it even more depressing, but I just need like, if you're listening, I need you to get that whenever someone so one of the things I love about being a rhetorician and Amy can correct me if she feels differently but is that is I, we're not binary people so in in and I don't know if you remember this a while ago but it's like last year or something and this wrestler this this boy this man this young man wrestler was going to go to states as a wrestling champion but he had to wrestle a girl because 
or, or a young woman because um, wrestling is co-ed in some states or counties Hi. or whatever now. And he wouldn't because he said he had too much respect for women. <laughs> and and my re- and everybody was on Facebook and people were and I'm a I'm a good solid feminist and so people were sending me this article and I and I'm like okay. <laughs> um, uh. He has taken away her cons- – she, she she is perfectly capable of deciding she wants to wrestle. Like if this were coercion or she was in danger, yes. but they're, they're in weight classes. She's been trained. I mean, there is nothing about this that doesn't suggest that she has consented and is of, of just like – and to celebrate him just chivalrously or whatever that word is coming in and denying her. Is, there is nothing about this except just obvious sexism couched as reverence for women. And I – told everyone, like, whenever you see a situation in which we are revering women for their noble qualities or whatever, I was like, there's always fear. It's uh-huh. always going to be there, right? You're never going to, you're never going to get one without the other. So always be suspicious of that. And that's so true with these, with this, especially, and you often see it from Southern legislators about, about rape um, legislation and just how they are simultaneously so in awe of women's bodies, yet it always couches an incredibly problematic, often like horrendous legal maneuver that go- often goes with it. Right, right. And I think those are some excellent examples. I had not heard about that wrestler story, but. I only heard about it because everyone kept forwarding it to me on social media. And I eventually just went on a rant and people were like, God, it's, <laughs> it's just a news story. And I was like, it's never just a news story. Right, right. But you have you heard the word benevolent sexism? Yes, yes, I have. I have, I, I don't use it. I should use it more often. But right, that's exactly what that is. Like yeah. it's a, a micro. It's also like a. I don't know. Somebody else called it a microaggression, which I don't know if that word is. I don't. I don't actually know if that word works for for gender related stuff or if it's more of a. But that would also work, right? That it's 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 sexism, yeah. sexism in another mode, kind of thing. Yeah. No, I think either. Yeah, I, I think either of those terms are are pertinent. Yeah. So yeah, this was a great chapter. I mean, I really enjoyed it. I think, uh, did, did you publish any of these as independent articles by any chance? Any of these chapters? Not exactly. Now, I did publish an article in the, a journal called Rhetoric of Health and Medicine. And it was published after the book. And it was, it, it kind of comments or it kind of incorporates some text from the book, but it's more of a persuasive article. So it's more of an opinion piece. And it was written a little bit later, so it brings in, I mean, there's an endless wealth of examples, right? Like I could keep writing this book and just pick up the newspaper every day and find a new example. So it's a little more current, but it's also a little more opinionated, a little more edgy, I guess I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, well, the reason I ask is because um, I could imagine you just having a whole blog that's literally just every time somebody says something in public discourse about women, <laughs> about women's bodies, just basically making a never ending chapter five that just accumulates all the stuff that people say, that you know, e- good idea. even now with the stuff going on around um, McCain um, d- digitally raping that, that staffer for in the, in the nineties uh, that just came out, which I thought meant for the longest time, I thought meant like text messaging, but then I realized digitally meant with, with fingers. So I felt really stupid about oh. that. But the way that people are talking about, oh, well, that wouldn't have been possible for this and oh, women's bodies, that and all this stuff or oh, men's brains and that it's like, oh my gosh, what year is it? Right. Yeah. So I mean, I just, so chapter five was awesome. I mean, I could just see like this applying just in, into the infinite future, unfortunately, and all the ways that people say things that are just clearly rooted in that, what we think is this shed antiquated sense of hormones and hysteria, but it just keeps, it keeps hanging on to these concepts, no matter how hard you try to, to make them quote unquote, like scientific. Yes, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Oh, it's just such a good book. I'm such a, I mean, I guess that's why I volunteer my free time to read books and talk to people about them, but I get real excited <laughs> about this stuff. All right. So we're at 44 minutes and we absolutely have to hit the last chapter about the, the, the obviously the question that I think a lot of people are going to be looking at, which is what does this have to do with what I'm learning about hormones now as a science? And if any, by the way, if you haven't seen the, so that, that horrible book that came out a couple of years ago about the woman's brain, did you read this book? Which one is that? I don't know. It was so popular. I got two copies of it for Christmas as if no one oh. had ever met, as if no one had ever met me. And then Whitney Cummings, who's a, a stand up comedian, 
made a movie out of it in 2017, which I thought was, I wish, I wish I'd known you in 2017 because it would have been a hilarious concluding text for your book. Oh, but if you haven't seen the movie, um, I'll send you the link when we're done. But I, I thought after reading this book, I went back and rewatched the movie. It was so much better having all of this context and background. So I will have to look that yeah. up somehow. Somehow I missed that one. And you first mentioned is is this the more popular book? It's really popular. Yeah, it's a pop okay. science book. It came out maybe like six years ago, or or a second edition maybe came out. I'll have to look it up. I I would know it by the cover, but unfortunately, there's so many books called like "This Is the Woman's Brain" or "What You Never Knew About the Woman's Brain" or whatever. But it's okay. something like that. But then okay, Whitney, yeah. But yeah, but Whitney Cummings made a movie about it. But she's relatively um. A small, small potatoes. So I'm not surprised you didn't see this movie. I don't think it was widely circulated. Okay. Okay. So anyway, so yeah, in this, this is the chapter where I get into some more contemporary examples and I, I start out the chapter. I just noticed with a, some quotes from a discussion forum, uh, where women are talking about the, I think the, the website is called Pregly. <laughs> But it's a discussion forum for basically pregnant women and all mm. quotes and examples of them talking about how, uh, oh, they're, they just can't function. Their brains are just so messed up and they're making lives or they're making life really difficult for their husbands because they can't remember anything and they lose their keys and, and whatever else. And I mean, this was from this was very current whenever I was writing the book in 2017 or whatever. These were current. These are like only a few years old. And so it was just really interesting to analyze that in context of all of the historical work that the book has done. Right. And so then that led me into I was trying to figure out what is the science behind this? And sure enough, a lot of their things they were saying in their comments could be very directly traced to very recent high profile legitimate peer-reviewed scientific research and well really oh geez well i mean yeah not in a very like they weren't citing scientific texts but what i'm saying is it didn't take much digging to go out and find a journalistic report of the Mm. latest scientific study that was actually studying uh you know why brains women why women's brains function Mm -hmm. they do in the context or when they're pregnant. And, you know, I think one of the things I say in the chapter is why are we even asking this question anymore? Like let's leave aside the scientific methods of the study or whatever. I'm not a scientist. I'm not really qualified to, to rip apart their scientific method, but why do we keep asking this question? What is useful about it? And what is the purpose? And then I think in the chapter two, I moved beyond pregnancy brain. And then there's this one scientific study that will, oh, I will always remember. It will always stand out in my mind. And it is this study where they literally, they were studying the hormonal hormones effects on women's brains during menstruation and different times of the cycle. So they put women in a situation where they were given, they had these, these scientists or whatever, the researchers were giving them math problems and seeing how they would respond. But what the women did not know is that there was an algorithm built into it. So the more problems they got right, the more difficult problems they would be given. So in other words, they're being set up to fail. And then the, what was being measured was how does their response to that differ depending on where they're at in their hormone cycle. And hmm. I remember coming across that study and just thinking, oh, my God. And this, this pu- study was published like in 2000, I don't know. It, it was very recent at the time. And how? why in the world are we doing this? And it was so judgmental in the, in the um, conclusion section and how they uh, reported it. You know, clearly there was a judgment against women who are – women who responded really strongly to that and resisted and got, you know, mad or whatever were judged negatively. Whereas women who just kind of took it in stride and stayed calm were judged as having a positive response. And I was just thinking that is everything that's wrong with the world right there in one scientific study. <laughs> did, did, just out of curiosity, do you know if they did a control group with men? No, not in that particular study. And, you know, 
Not, not, not that if they had, I would give a shit about the data anyway. Um, but at least if they had, it would indicate that they are, that they're, that they're open to the possibility that maybe there is no real difference. Maybe just people are all different and it's not driven by hormones, but the fact that they don't even think to, to take this as one of many potential factors is incredibly like, it must be like, there must be a problem based on menstrual cycle. Like that's the, that has to be the key. We just have to figure out what it is. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yes, they, uh, they are doing some really interesting it's not interesting it's actually i think it's really weird and i hate it but there is this new uh brand of like entrepreneurial advice coming out about women women owned and and majority women companies organizing their workflow based on cycle oh and so so there are apps that will tell you when in your cycle is the best time to do xyz i mean and, and 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 they're making a lot more money than you and I are making. I'll tell you that right now. Giving yeah. giving these companies advice to organize their workflow so that you know in the in the follicular phase, whenever that is, women are supposed to be doing more creative labor and all this shit. And oh god, it's just I like yeah. even if it were true that in certain phases you did in fact have different. Like the idea could be the same for every woman. And the fact that you now have trans trans women who who still menstruate. I mean, it's just. Oh, I can't. I can't, Amy. No. I can't. No, I, I can't believe you haven't finished this book. I would have smashed uh, it through <laughs> at this point. Well, it's funny because that one, you know, anytime you're writing a book, you get tired sometimes and you think, oh, it's never going to end. And do I really want to? Yeah. I would always come back to that one study and I would read it. And I think this is why I have to finish this book. Right. I know. Well, that's good. And I have to finish my book too. So this is a, this is a productive conversation because the last chapter is on <laughs> the last chapter is on Trump's 2016 campaign slogan compared oh. to Clinton, to, compared to Clinton. Oh. And I've been procrastinating writing it because I just don't want to, but it needs to be done. But the th- right. but to bring us back to, to your book and not make it about me. Um, I did want to just say though, for people listening at home though, like let's suppose, however, that you have discovered this method of working, planning your workflow according to your menstrual cycle. And it works wonderfully for you. I think that's fine. I just want you to realize that's a rhetorical choice, right? They have provided you with some kind of like, like, like exactly what we've been talking about, a framework, topology, stasis, or you, and you've stumbled upon the fact that that works for you, but just don't essentialize it as being rooted in your body and then extrapolate to this being rooted in all women's bodies. So you can enjoy the fact that you stumbled on this really great workflow idea or whatever you want to call it. But not then turn that, and this is the problem I think with the scientific discourse is that they then want to generalize that to be true for everyone, and then they want to root it in your as if it occurs somewhere in the body, if the as if the body were the Fort Knox of the exchange system. No, exactly, yeah. And then the other part of that is, I mean, like you're saying, don't just assume it applies to all women's bodies, but then also turn it around. Don't just assume that it doesn't apply to men's bodies. Oh, yeah, right. right? Mm-hmm. I mean that we are still at a point and i mean i have scientific evidence is cited in the book where we just don't study male hormones in the same way yes just yeah yeah I, and i yeah and that's actually a great ending note because that was actually in my list of questions the, the of the things i wanted to make sure we talked about that was the last and most important item so let's wrap up there so tell yeah tell us about that so why don't we study men's bodies and hormones in the same way? And why not just assume that these are all part of the same kind of scientific question? Like what's going on there? Well, I just, I don't know that I have an answer to that, but I think the book provides. Oh, I meant, sorry. It's in the context of what you wrote in the book. Sorry, not in the context of answer, answer me the hardest scientific question ever posed. <laughs> right, just, right. Yeah, what's, what's the book have to say in terms of a starting point or where you're thinking about that? Well, I just think it is just goes back to almost the beginning of the book. And I mean, for so many centuries, we have just assumed it's just this massive blind spot. We have just assumed that men are the default and women are the ones that depart from the norm. And I think that's where in the final chapter, I connect to modern discussions, to current ongoing discussions of diversity which anyone who works in higher education knows this is a very important topic and something we take seriously. But I think we often just think of diversity in terms of numbers. But what I try to argue in the final chapter is, you know, getting a more diverse set of knowers at all levels in the academy and getting 
diverse group of experts on every topic is the only way that you're going to get away from all of these problems that are identified in the book. I mean, you have a centuries-long tradition, pretty much forever, of men are doing the knowing and women and everyone else, or anyone who's not kind of a the white Western male, are the subjects of the knowledge. And until you change that, you're always going to have these just fundamental blind spots. And it's not going to be very good knowledge. It's not, it's not as good a knowledge as it could be. Yeah, and you have a great section in the conclusion about the importance of continuing for the sciences and the humanities to work together. And I just want to reiterate that because especially under the current administration uh, listeners, like the human, the funding for the humanities is being cut left and right. Not that it was ever super generous. Right. And it's because people don't think that the humanities has anything to offer because, oh, we're not scientists and we don't do experiments. But I mean, if you, if you read Amy's book, just from this conversation, you can see how much Amy's perspective as a rhetorician brings to the study of science. And without her, look at the blind spots that we allow science to get away with and how much damage it does. Not that it doesn't, not that science isn't also doing great things. We're not offering, we're not, you know, Amy's, Amy doesn't suggest displacing the sciences with the humanities, but, you know, keep all the voices at the table, not just gender diversity, but diversity of discipline. That is an excellent point. Well, it's your point. So right back at you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so by, by way of like plugging, I'll just wrap up by saying, so that's one takeaway from the book is if you are able to advocate, or if you are in the sciences, you know, advocate for humanities uh, people to be at the table and making these decisions. And um, in terms of, a, I don't know, have you read Ruth Lay's The Ascent of Affect yet? I don't think so, no. It is, next to your book, it is the maybe the best rhetoric of science book I've ever read. But she, And she specifically deals with um, like what she calls the readout theory of human emotions. So all these studies that suggest that like certain facial expressions mean certain emotions or that, uh, that like anger is u- a universal human emotion. It's really good. And, and I had read her book and, and after reading your book, I felt a, a real kindred uh, spirit there. It's, it's, a, it's a big book though. And she also takes it from kind of like post-World War II all the way up into the present moment. But she, she's a humanist, which is cool. So she looks at how the scientific studies have informed the humanities turn to affect and why, that, why the roots of that are problematic given what the science was doing for the last 50 years. And then in, in exchange... Oh, it's, oh yeah, it's great. I mean, it's it, like I said, right up there with your book. And then in exchange, do you have a book recommendation or something you're reading right now or something you've heard about that maybe we could invite to come on the podcast for an interview? Well, I have a couple of different ones. Um, so I don't, how, I mean, how far back do you we, go? Like we how, are within five years. So it would have to be post 2015 to, to be considered for the new books network. Not, not that I don't still love a good book recommendation. I'll still take them all day long. Right, right. Well, so uh, there's a book published in 2017 by uh, Laura, Ardu- Laura Arducer, and it was published by, I think it was Ohio State University Press. It's called Living Chronic Agency and Expertise in the Rhetoric of Diabetes. Oh, that's cool. So, yeah, um, that was a good one. There's another one. Uh, how many do what? Because I could probably go on and on. <laughs> Yeah, why don't you give me two? But any, I mean, anytime, and this is true of anyone. So my email is just, um, just my last name Pierce, and then my first initial L, L at, and then this is the hard part, Geneseo, G E N E S E O dot E D U. So if anybody listening or you at any point want to send me, I'm also on social media. You can DM me there. Um, wants to send me a book rec, I will take them. But yeah, why don't you give me another one? Because I wrote down Arducer. Okay, uh, and so another one. So I. I I kind of stay in touch with things that come out with Ohio State University Press. So this is another real recent. It actually has a 2020 publication date called Vaccine Rhetorics. Oh, cool. Heidi Lawrence. And it's about sort of the anti-vax controversy and all of that. That's very awesome. I will check both of those out. Yeah, those are two that come to mind. But if I think of any more, I will send them your way for sure. I would love that. And so to wrap up, I just want to reiterate, Amy, how appreciative I am because I can't even imagine the work and mental fortitude (laughs) that went into constructing this book. And it is such a valuable contribution to the field. But I also think to just general knowledge about what's going on with these kinds of scientific discourses. And to my friends and listeners at home, 
one more time. This is Amy Korber from Hysteria to Hormones from the Pennsylvania State University Press 2018. I strongly encourage you to pick up a copy. If you don't buy books for yourself or you think you have had it, have, have gotten enough, you can also reach out to your local library, whether that's a public library or a library at your campus, and ask them to purchase a book or even purchase a copy of the book and give it to the library because that's a way to get these messages out to people that maybe don't normally have access. And also to support Amy, but more importantly, because we make no money on these books, basically, to support the university presses because without university presses, some of whom help keep the New Books Network afloat, which is entirely nonprofit, without those university presses, we don't get work out like this because trade industry publications would not be interested in work of this depth, unfortunately. So it is really important, even if you don't want a personal copy, that to help support this kind of work that we find so important that you get the message out and you support the university presses. Amy, do you want to say anything else before we wrap up? No, I think I think that's good. Thank you very much for the promotion. Yes, and um, I will go ahead and be in touch in social media and also uh, my own podcast, Rhetorically Speaking, which just launched a couple weeks ago. If anybody wants to head over into their podcast app and check that out, it's the word rhetoric and then my first name, L-E-E, and then speaking. So, Amy, this was a wonderful interview, and I will sign off at that. And if anybody has questions or comments, would you like them to send them to me and I'll forward them to you, or would you like to give out your contact information? Uh, You can give out my contact information. That's fine. It's uh, right, cool. So yeah, if anyone has questions for me, go ahead and send them my way. And then I will make sure Amy gets them and responds if she so chooses. Yes, absolutely. All right, cool. Well, thanks again for coming on and everyone have a wonderful day. 